before I begin, I just want to uh, to pray for my own for my own soul. Um, let's pray. Father, I would pray even now that you might move distractions out of my mind. Um, just what a joy it is to have little children we we worship with, and yet how distracting it can be at times. And I just confess a difficulty even there today. Um, yet I, I am thrilled with all the the kids that are here among us, even some new kids having come without their parents, friends of some of the kids club kids. Um, Father, would pray that we would love these children as they are so needy. Would pray that just by our efforts of what we can do in their life might change the course of where they are going and what they are doing with their life. Um, Father, I would pray that as we open Your Word, I pray that as we look through the the life of Jesus at Him, I pray it would stir our hearts afresh. Um, God, give us a a heart and a passion for Him and to follow Him. Um, Help us to see what You want us to see in the pages of Your Word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. You can turn to um, turn to chapter one, Mark chapter one. That's what we're looking at this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to tell you an experience that I often have. When it, whenever I meet a a man who is pastoring a church or just beginning to pastor a church, um, I often find myself asking him uh, a question. Uh, depending upon if they just came to that city or they just moved there or just started pastoring, and I. I don't know why I do this, but I always ask, I say, oh, so, so you're still in the honeymoon stage, huh? And um, I, I say, so, so still the people love you, and, and they love your teaching, right? And, and, and you're still in that stage where you can do no wrong in their eyes? And then I always say something like, well, enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> because it won't always last. Um, sometimes it'll go a long time. Sometimes the honeymoon stage will be uh, a short time. In fact, I remember talking with a friend of mine who was uh, he candidated and got a, a pastor of a church. I, I forget whether it was Oklahoma or Texas. And uh, he flew down early uh, before his family was or wherever he was. I forget exactly before the circumstance. And he flew down there and he said um, he was picked up from one of the key influential ladies in the church. And uh, he said my honeymoon ended on my ride home from the airport <laughs> as I heard some of the issues and some of the things going on in the church and some of the things that she was expecting of me that I knew I wasn't going to fulfill. And I remember when the honeymoon stage at Rock Valley Bible Church, it, it, was, it was a wonderful time. We were here in Rockford. Um, by God's grace, we were a small group of people. I sacrificed much to quit my job, my nice job in, in DeKalb, move up here to Rockford. I give myself to these people. Things were exciting. People in church loved me. I could do no wrong in their eyes. Um, church was at peace. And then, then the phone call came. I remember this was a, a couple of years in. I remember alerted to a first major strife of people in the church. And... Um, Strife wasn't directed towards me, but members of our congregation, which just caused me much angst and disappointment as we sought to handle things and reconcile things there, and just never even quite did. 
uh, just sorrow for me. My wife reminded me. She said, yes, yeah, Steve, I remember when the honeymoon ended. In fact, and she told me right where we were. She said, we're in the car just south of Straight, State Street on Bell School Road, heading home just right near the Road Ranger. And Steve, you said something like, you know, I got a phone call the other day. Can't tell you all the details, but the honeymoon has ended is the, the phrase that, that I used. And I just know that due to the sinfulness of man, church will have conflict. And that's the way it always is. But there is this period of time when a new spiritual leader comes on the scene. It comes into a group of people and there's often a time of great peace because everything he says is new and fresh. The people uh, appreciate that. He hasn't been among them long enough so as to sin against them and to reconcile with forgiveness and how that needs to happen over the years that takes place. It's a time of a honeymoon, but the day comes when expectations aren't met and something said offends and some conflict comes and that's when the honeymoon's over. Well, here in Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus in the honeymoon stage of His ministry. As you know, Jesus faced much conflict in His ministry, but here in Mark chapter 1, we see that all is well. The people are amazed. He is, uh, they love His authority. The crowds are coming. News about Jesus is spreading quickly. His ministry is growing. See if you can see these things. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. And when the evening came... After the sun had set, they began bringing to Him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And He healed many who were ill and with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for Him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues and throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean and move with compassion. Jesus stretched out His hand and touched him and said, I am willing to be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And He sternly warned them, warned him and immediately sent him away. 
And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. Alright, I've taken today a big chunk of Scripture, much bigger than I normally do or normally like to do. I'm naturally inclined to take smaller portions of Scripture and really rip it up. But I've done so because Mark has really been pushing us along with this immediately clause. It's just like, like it's coming and it's coming immediately, immediately, immediately. And I just want us to, to get that sense from Mark because we have a, a fast action gospel here and I, I don't want to drag. I mean, notice how many times Mark writes immediately. In fact, it's seven times in this passage alone. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. In verse 23, the NAS says this, Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. Literally, the same word. Immediately, they, um, there was a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue. Or verse 28, Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere to all the surrounding district to Galilee. 29, and immediately there came, they came out of the synagogue. And verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. 43, and he sternly warned them and immediately sent him away. Yvonne and I were talking on the way to church today. This is probably not such great English. If you had an English teacher and you're writing the same word immediately, 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 it's probably not the best piece of literature. Um, not to deny that the Bible, I'm not trying to say that in any way, but I'm just saying that Mark is just writing this down, just, just using the same word again and again, and perhaps, as Yvonne said, he's probably using it for emphasis. Just to, just to press us about getting these stories on. And, and so, one of the reasons I'm taking this big passage as well is I want us to, to feel and get the sense of, of the big picture what's going on. And the big picture what's going on here in chapter 1 is that things are going well. It's a thriving ministry of Jesus. I've chosen to call it the honeymoon. There's nothing negative at all going on in this chapter. Jesus doing great things, people being healed of their diseases, the teaching of Jesus, wowing the multitudes, the crowds are coming, even banging on the door, and they recognize His authority and are glad and are like, what is this? Is this a new teaching? The honeymoon will end though in chapter 2 when they claim Jesus is blaspheming and they take offense at His associations with people and when they question His religious practices. But chapter 1 is all positive and I want us to give us a message here of all positive things that are taking place. By way of outline this morning, I just have three words and it's not nice and neat. It's not like verses 21 through this is this word and these are through the, this word, uh, these verses. But these three words kind of characterize everything that's going on. Basically, they... They work in sequential order. But the first word I want us to show, to show you this morning is this word authority. It's one of the first words that pop up when you, when you read this text. It's just the authority of Jesus. Verse 21, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath He entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at His teaching, for He's teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And there it is. There's that word authority coming up. It's just, just what Jesus was. He just had authority. Now, Capernaum, where they entered the synagogue, was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
fact, its ruins are still present today. If you go there today, you'll see, I think it's a 4th century, 5th century uh, ruins of a synagogue, which is actually built on top of the previous synagogue that was there by the Sea of Galilee. Um, my wife and I were there 14 years ago, maybe, in, in Israel. It, and, and the synagogue there stands right on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, when you think about that, think Hawaii. Maybe it's not big in the ocean, but the water is warm. It's a nice, uh, cool, comfortable place um, amidst a lot of desert lands. Uh, it's a really nice spot. And there the, the synagogue is there. And I'm guessing maybe, maybe 100 feet is the sea. It's really close by there. And it was the Sabbath day, that is Saturday, when Simon, Andrew, James, and John entered the synagogue. Now, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, we saw and picked up in verse 16 through 20. These are the first four disciples of Jesus that He called. Simon and Andrew are brothers, and James and John are brothers. He entered the synagogue, and surely by this time, Jesus had some reputation about being a religious leader, and so was invited to preach in the synagogue. And though he did, so he did. He taught them. We have no record of what Jesus taught on this occasion, but we do have a record of how the people responded. It says in verse 22 that they were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed. Now we could expect that. I mean, everywhere Jesus went, people were amazed at his teaching. <clears throat> when Jesus healed the paralytic, and he got up and walked home, the crowds were amazed at Jesus and what he did. When the Herodians tried to trap him, Mark chapter 12, and asked him this tricky question about whether it's lawful to pay taxes or not, and he ripped out a, a denarius, he asked a denarius, he said, whose inscription is it? Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are, are God's. And the people were amazed at him. When Jesus demanded the rich young ruler to sell all of his possessions and give to the poor and come and follow me, the disciples were amazed at his teaching. You say, why were they amazed? Well, we have the explanation right here. They were amazed at His teaching for... That means because. This is why they were amazed at His teaching. Because He was teaching as one having authority and not as the scribes. There's a contrast there. That Jesus was preaching authoritatively and the scribes presumably didn't. I mean, His teaching, Jesus, was different than the rabbis. The rabbis, their custom was to quote all the rabbis who came before them. And so they always quoted the, the ancient Targums and the, the traditions and the Mishnah rather than just quoting from the Bible and what the Bible says. But Jesus didn't do that. In fact, Jesus, whenever He spoke about the traditions of the elders, always spoke in a negative light. The keeping of the Sabbath laws according to man-made rules, which we may get to next week at the end of chapter 2. Or the washing of hands according to the tradition of the elders. Or the pledging of possessions to God that they might not use them to support their, their parents. Um, Jesus almost always said the traditions you have are bad. Jesus didn't come quoting the rabbis. He never quotes them in, an unfit, in a favorable light. Rather, His teaching was different. He was authoritative. And I think that one of the reasons for that, He was eminently biblical. In Luke's Gospel, when Jesus came to preach in Nazareth, He took a scroll, had it opened to the book of Isaiah 61, and expounded it. He just opened the Bible is, is what he did. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he constantly took people back to the Old Testament, not to the traditions of men. And when you speak on God's behalf, you can be authoritative. When you say, thus saith the Lord, you can be authoritative. And so was Jesus. 
And I think furthermore, the reason why Jesus was authoritative in His teaching is the high demands He placed on people. I mean, just even right here in the context, when He saw Simon and Andrew, He said to them, follow Me and I'll make you fishers of men. When He came to James and um, John, His brother, same deal. Follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. There's just a, a call to forsake all and follow Me. In fact, Jesus says this, if anyone wants to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow Me. It's a complete abandonment of everything He has. Jesus demanded that we forsake all to follow Christ. And that's authoritative. When, when someone comes along, Jesus did, and He says, you need to follow Me, you need to abandon everything. Such was the authority of Jesus. But it wasn't only the teaching of Jesus that had authority, it was His actions as well. Look at verse 30, 23. Just then, there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So picture the scene. Jesus is in the synagogue. He's probably seated up front teaching. And there's someone in the third row who stands up and cries out and says, Jesus, what business do we have with you? You're the Holy One of God. Disrupts the whole service. And can you imagine that happening here? Someone from a row over here, just stands up and starts yelling. That doesn't happen often in church services, but it does on occasion. I read this week about how Andy Stanley's pastors Brownsbridge Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia, maybe, in the suburbs of Atlanta someplace. Thousands of people. And um, I read uh, near the end of his service, just, just recently, weeks ago, a heckler way in the back started yelling at him and started confronting Andy Stanley with his theology and, and just kept screaming. With a few moments, there's security teams kind of around that man. And he kept, he kept going at it. He kept yelling. He kept protesting. He kept trying to contradict what Andy Stanley is saying. And, and um, then Andy Stanley kept his composure right there on the stage, kind of watched this all out. And once he got out... Um, Andy gave an explanation of what the guy was saying, how he might refute him. They said, let's pray for us and for him. And prayed and closed the service. But I'm not sure something like that will happen here. It might. But imagine, what would happen if, if someone started coming up and just railing against me? Pretty soon we'd find some guys kind of gather around him, right? Steve Halzell, being a big guy, would kind of, kind of just grab him, right? Chad, I know you'd be up there right, right with him as well, and Garth, you'd be as well, and you'd kind of usher him out and take him you know, to the, the family room, maybe down the hall in my office, and maybe call the police if, if necessary. I mean, that, that type of thing would happen if someone starts coming here railing and complaining about what's happened here. But, but I want you to notice that this isn't what happened in the synagogue in Capernaum that day long ago. Look at what happened in verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Jesus didn't wait for the men of the congregation or the synagogue to arise and subdue the man to take him out. No, Jesus took matters into his own hands and he himself rebuked the demon. Verse 26, we see what happened to the demon. See what happens to the man, actually, and the demons. Throwing him, the man, into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice, and came out of him. Now, my suspicion is that complete calm was restored to this man. Whereas once he was ranting and raving, it was really the demon in him that was raging. Once the demon was out, I think this man was seated in his right mind. Because we have 
An instance of that in Mark chapter 5. A demon-possessed man who was so wild that he was among the tombs and no one could, could bind him with chains. When Jesus cast a legion of angels out of that man into the swine, a few minutes later, he was seated in his right mind, clothed, thinking clearly. And I think this man in the synagogue was probably there thinking clearly. But I don't think that it restored calm to the synagogue because of, of what people said. They were, they were shocked at what took place. Look at verse 27. They were all amazed. And so they debated among themselves, saying, you know, it caused this, this stir in the congregation. All of a sudden, everyone starts talking and they're debating amongst themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. I think mayhem, in some sense, erupted at that point from the, from the congregation in the synagogue. But that was the ministry of Jesus, a ministry of authority. Now, I want to go back a little bit and look at these demons. These demons knew how authoritative Jesus was. Look at what he said, this demon. Verse 24 again. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. This demon knew who Jesus was. There was no accident. He identified Jesus as the Holy One of God. He was the Holy One sent from God. Probably knew that He was God Himself, the second person of the Trinity. And it's not like this demon had special insight that other demons weren't privy to. Look at down at verse 34. Jesus healed many of those who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons and was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. The demonic world knew full well what was happening when Jesus came to earth. This, one, this demon here just happened to be afraid of Jesus and, and spoke out about what was happening didn't catch the demon world by surprise. They knew it was happening. They knew God had come into the flesh. They knew that, that God had come to wage war against the demonic powers of the earth. And right here in Capernaum, the battle lies are drawn. There's no doubt who's in control. In fact, even the demon asked, have you come to destroy us? He doesn't resist. He doesn't challenge. He merely questions the intent of Jesus as the moment. at the moment. Is now the time we're going to come and destroy us? He knew they were going to be destroyed. The demons know full well who's in charge of the universe. It says in James chapter 2 that the demons believe that God is one. The demons believe that God is the sovereign one over all the universe and they shudder. And that's what this demon was here doing. He was shuddering. He knew that Jesus was the Holy One. He was fearful. He was fearful that He was going to be destroyed. Well, Jesus cast him out. And we have no idea what happened to the demon but the battle eyes were drawn, and this is the first of many interactions Jesus has then with demons, even in the book of Mark. I mean, right here in our text, look at verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had been set, they began bringing to Him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Verse 34. He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Or verse 39. He went into their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, casting out their demons. Chapter 5, we'll read of Jesus encountering this demoniac who lived in the tombs. In chapter 7, we'll, receive, we'll read of Jesus encountering the woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit and He cast it out. In Mark chapter 9, we'll read of Jesus casting out a demon from a little boy who was afflicted with his youth. It just shows the authority of Jesus over demons. And by the way, let me just say this. is that The whole demonic activity really arose a lot in the days of Jesus. 
you will almost search in vain, though, for demonic activity in the epistles. Just hardly there if there at all. Just, I, I think it had to do with the fact that God was on earth confronting the demonic world, was bringing to light what was happening. Had, Jesus had a way of piercing and penetrating people and those who had demons. They are just, just stirred up at that time. Now I think they lay low for the most part. They don't want to be exposed. But Jesus has authority over demons. And I just say that He has, he has authority over demons. He has authority over sickness. He can heal us too. There's a comforting thing that the same authority that Jesus had back then, he doesn't, it's not like He's lost it today. He's the one who can heal Carol's leg. He's the one who can give safe births. He's the one who can, can uh, restore broken marriages. He's the one who can help. Well, this put forth the authority of Jesus in His teaching, casting out demons. Let's go to my second word. Not only authority, but also the ministry of Jesus was filled with popularity. Again, remember, this is the honeymoon stage. This is when everything's going well. We see the authority of Jesus and now popularity. Verse 28, immediately, the news about Him spread everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. When Jesus cast the demon out of the synagogue, the, the, out of the demoniac in the synagogue, news about Him spread like wildfire. I can just picture how it happened. People are coming home from uh, the worship service on the Sabbath and they're talking. Did you hear what happened this morning? And they say, no, what happened? A new preacher showed up in town. Oh, who is that? His name's Jesus. He delivered a good message? Well, yes, but, but the message wasn't really the amazing part. Well, what was the amazing part? It was a disturbance caused by Zebediah. You know that crazy man who walks up and down the shore? He just, just talks with all the fishermen is all he does? Crazy man? Yeah, I know. He came to the service. They let him in? Yeah. He came into the service and then right in the middle of the service he stand, stood up and shouted at Jesus, the visiting preacher. Really? What happened? Well, Jesus yelled back at him and the demon fled out of this man and calm was restored in his life. Wow. Yeah, we were all amazed. Never seen anything like it before. And from one house went the discussion and went to another house. Hey, did you hear what happened in the synagogue today? No, what happened? This new preacher came to town. Oh, yeah? What's his name? Jesus is his name. Yeah, what happened? Well, he taught and this man stood up. You know that, that crazy guy that walks along by the side of the seat? Yeah, and he healed him and out came the Spirit. Really? And it went on and on and on and on. And I think it just spread like wildfire fire around Capernaum. And all the while this is happening, Jesus, verse 29, is spending the afternoon at Peter's home. We read there, verse 29, Immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, archaeologists have discovered, uncovered rows of houses that date back to the first century A.D. that were very close to the synagogue. And uh, it's presumed that one of these houses was, G, was Peter's house. You know, just a mere 50 feet away, 100 feet away, 200 feet away. I forget how far exactly it was. But you can walk right out of that, um, that synagogue and right, walk right into one of these houses. It's probably right where Jesus was. You get the sense here, verse 29, immediately. It's like he made a beeline for Simon's house. Simon and Andrew, of course, are brothers. And they've got these other disciples, James and John, with them. These four disciples he had called. And, and as Jesus arrived, he was told something about the household. Verse 30, now Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. Now, there's lots of discussion in our world about mothers-in-law. Um, 
This is called, by the way, comic relief in the midst of the sermon. And uh, my mother-in-law is great. I just want to go on record in case she's listening to this MP3 over the internet. Um, but my mother-in-law is great. But some mother-in-laws aren't aren't so well taken to. And so I'm not sure where Peter was. He was a godly man, so he didn't. But but maybe Peter didn't mind that she was sick because mother-in-laws don't have the greatest reputations, right? People people say that a mother-in-law can cause mixed feelings, right? When she drives your new BMW over the cliff, right? You got, yeah. People say there's only one thing worse than bringing your mother into the emergency room after a heart attack when you hear the doctor say, she's okay and she'll be all right. Or perhaps they say they, people say they want to take, they want to have their mother-in-law go ice fishing soon before the ice gets too thick, is what they say. Those are mother-in-laws don't have a, a great reputation, but probably not the case, not the case here. Peter, certainly cared for his mother-in-law. But I just had to stick that in there because you don't have a chance very often to say mother-in-law jokes and, and I think they're kind of funny. In fact, I grabbed them, I forget, motherinlawjokes.com or something like that. There's something out there. But anyway, Jesus comes and it says there in uh, verse 30 that immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And so Jesus found out that she was sick. And in verse 31... We read that He came to her, raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When Jesus heard about her, He went to where she was, took her by the hand, and lifted her up. Her fever went away instantly. Immediately, she waited on them. Peter's mother-in-law didn't need any time to recover. She instantly began serving Jesus and the disciples. I'm not sure what serving meant here. But somehow, whether it's food or pastries or, or helping them or after the Sabbath message, Sabbath service, I don't know. But here she is. She's healed completely. And that's just like when Jesus heals, He heals instantly and completely. It doesn't take a lot of time to heal. He can heal with a touch. We see this all throughout the Gospel of Mark. That whenever Jesus wants to heal, and this is another sign, by the way, of His authority. When Jesus wants to heal, He heals completely, instantaneously, obviously for all to see. And so he's there with a mother-in-law. And then we find out what, what happened at the end of the day. So, synagogue service in the morning, all afternoon at Peter's house. He and his mother-in-law spends time with them. She probably helps them, serves them lunch, whatever. And then the evening came. There's time. Um, these time words. Verse 32, When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now, it's no accident that the whole town came when evening came, because the Sabbath day starts on Friday night, and it ends on Saturday evening. And when Saturday evening rolls around, the Sabbath is over, people, according to Jewish law, could travel and they could carry burdens like sick people. And so that even it says it there, right there in verse 33, they brought the sick to Jesus. They were bringing Him. Verse 32, rather. They are bringing Him. And, and maybe that means on a cot or on a stretcher or carried over. They couldn't travel on the Sabbath with these sick people, but they certainly could travel when the Sabbath was over. And Capernaum had never seen anything like this before. Here's a man cast out demons of the Word. He could heal with a touch. And so all who were healed were 
who were ill were being brought to Jesus. And just speaks about his popularity. I mean, just, just many, many people. The, the ministry of Jesus really exploded in those days. If you look in verse 33, it says, The whole city gathered at the door. We don't know how big Capernaum was, but maybe a thousand people. Maybe two thousand people right there at the door with Jesus looking to be healed. Because maybe the, the news got out about Peter's mother-in-law as well. Not just demons. He could heal diseases as well. And the popularity even continued to the next day. Verse 35, in the early morning, again, time sequence. So after the people were gone and dismissed early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Here was Jesus, the master healer who'd been in the city less than 24 hours because when they came into Capernaum, verse 21, he was immediately on the Sabbath they entered. So he was there in the city and went in the Sabbath. And before 24 hours had elapsed, the entire city was looking for Jesus even before the sun came up. It's dark. It's 5 in the morning. It's 4.30 in the morning. And, and maybe they're rapping at, at Peter's door saying, where's this Jesus? Where's this? And he's gone. Everyone's looking for... It speaks of the, the honeymoon phase of Jesus where just everyone is coming. He's being sought. Jesus is being pursued. And not in a bad way. Later in the Gospel, we'll see Jesus being pursued in a bad way. Look over in chapter 3, verse 6. After this conflict, when the honeymoon is over and, and the lines are drawn, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Him as to how they might destroy Him. And we will see the Herodians and the scribes and the Pharisees pursuing Jesus against Him. But now they're pursuing Jesus in a good way. He's a man who could heal our diseases. Here's a man who could cure our ills. And the people wanted help. And boy, a great spot of application there. I mean, just even as the people knew that Jesus could heal them and they're going to Jesus, so we too. Jesus can heal us. We need to go to Him. Well, authority, popularity. My third word this morning is priority. Priority. I get this from verse 35. You can see it there. It's not, it doesn't appear right there, but it does show Jesus' priority. Verse 35, early in the morning, while it's still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. At this point, really, I can do no better than read a, a little portion of a, an essay that's turned into this little booklet called the, the Tyranny of the Urgent, which a friend of mine gave to me where he exposits this and he explains us what Jesus did. And I think it's good for us to hear. He said, what was the secret of Jesus' ministry? Look here, tyranny of the urgent. just speaks about, uh, this essay does, about the difference between the urgent and the important. And too often the urgent will, will crowd out what's really important. And Jesus here had a battle between what's important, praying and trusting the Lord and, and finding out the Father's will, as opposed to the urgent, which is all these people coming to Him who need healing. What's the secret of Jesus' ministry? We discover a clue in Mark's report of what happened after the very busy day of teaching and healing, which he first noted, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. He prayerfully waited for his Father's instructions. Jesus had no divinely drawn blueprint or schedule he discerned the Father's will day by day in a life of prayer. Because of this, he was able to resist the urgent demands of others and do what was really important for his mission. 
when Simon and his companions looked for Jesus and finally found Him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. The disciples had become embarrassed over their leader's delay. Did Jesus realize, didn't Jesus realize that back of the house of people who hadn't yet been healed were crowding around the door asking for Him? Jesus' answer couldn't have been more shocking. Let us go someplace else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. He then turned away from the waiting crowd and traveled through Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. Just right here, according to verse 39. That's what it says. He went out into their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. really ought to give you a little bit of an insight that Jesus left sick people there to go and pursue greater ministry because too much of a consumption with all the sick people would have distracted Him away from the important things in His life. But when Jesus escaped that early morning, he wasn't basking in the success of the early day. He wasn't resting up so as to get more energy to go back into Capernaum and build His kingdom. No. He was worshiping His heavenly Father, seeking wisdom from Him as to what to do the next day. Jesus' priority was to preach. Not to heal. I mean, certainly He healed, but it says here even that He came to preach. That is what I came for. He didn't want to let the urge of the multitudes that needed healing to get in the way of His purpose in life. The the Messiah had a message to bring. His message is found in chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is God's hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. He couldn't just stay there in Capernaum and get bogged down. He needed to go around, as it says, in all the synagogues in Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. With a discerning eye, you can even see the priority of Jesus. Just seeking to place a priority in getting His message out. In verse 34, we saw that He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. And He didn't want the demons to be talking about Him. He wanted it to come from His mouth. And so he, the demons didn't need to announce His arrival. That was John the Baptist. But now He's a, a, arrived and He wants others to be quiet about Him because He wants to repeat Capernaum in many other places as well. Come in, preach do the miraculous, show that indeed He is the Messiah, and then press on. Because He wants this message to get out to all the different synagogues. Well, at this point, just let me sound the alarm for always wanting something bigger and bigger and bigger in ministry. The heart of every pastor, I think, is to have a bigger ministry. I know, I know that's, that's my heart, to have more influence in the world, more people impacted with Jesus Christ. And maybe it's yours. I don't know. Maybe you like a small church at Rock Valley Bible Church. That's fine. Maybe you think, yeah, a bigger church, we'd have more avenues for the gospel and for ministry. And they're wonderful things that we can encourage in each of us. And, and yet, with such a desire, we can, we can miss the simple things that come with a smaller crowd. Like at Rock Valley Bible Church, one, one thing that we have is we have life on life. You know, I, I was talking with a church planter recently, and, and he said, you know, it takes a lot to get a church maybe up to about 300, but from 300 to 500, it goes smooth and easy. And then from 500 to 800, it goes smoother and easier. It's interesting. And you said that just because it's so hard to get there, and, and I think some of the issue is that once you're a big church, people can kind of come and stay on the fringe. And they'll come from big church to big church, and just that's kind of what it is, and don't have to really get involved. But Rock Valley Bible Church, it's different. 
We don't have all the, the niche programs for recovering alcoholics and homes for unwed teens and Bible studies for widows and children's extravaganza. But what we do have is we have each other. And that is, that is good enough. And I think that's what Jesus was wanting. He, he wanted a, a genuine encounter with people to call them to be disciples. I mean, he, he didn't set up time in Capernaum and say, okay, bring all the people from around this district of Galilee, come here so we can have a big conference and so we have 10,000 people I preach to everyone. He didn't want it just to be a voice. He wanted to be a person on a person, I think is what Jesus wanted to do. He wanted to have his life impact the life of others, focusing on the few. In fact, when you go through the Gospels, you see that Jesus didn't focus on the multitudes. In fact, he hid things from the multitudes many times. We'll see that in Mark chapter 4. But oftentimes, he really spent a lot of time with his disciples, and they're the ones then that went out. And, and I just say to you, if Rock Valley Bible Church would continue to grow, we need each of you to, to, to do what you can to minister in your circle, because my circle can only be so big. And Jesus knew His circle could only be so big, and so He limited it and even shunned away some of the popularity because He had a a priority on seeking smaller avenues in which to get His Gospel out. And let's just say, let's never despise the day of small things. Never despise the day of small things. Because He was faithful in little will be faithful in much. Well, let's continue on. I I do want to get through all of chapter 1 today, and it looks like I'm going to be able to do that. I want to pick up the story of the leper. Because I think it's just indicative of the, the success that's happening with Jesus. Again, these, these three words, authority, popularity, and priority, we see them just right here in the story of the leper. Verse 40, the leper came to Jesus, beseeching Him and falling on His knees before Him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And move with compassion, Jesus stretched out His hand and touched Him said, I'm willing to be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed, and he sternly warned him, and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news all around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. In the day of Jesus, leprosy was a dreaded disease. It's a disease that affects your nerves, um, particularly on the skin. You can't feel your skin any longer. And, and those abrasions which you rub up against, you'll just keep doing that because you can't feel anything. And those with leprosy oftentimes have, have hands that are mangled. They oftentimes have muscles that are, are weakened over times. Uh, in biblical times, lepers were cast off in their own colonies just away from life, regarded as outcasts. Nobody could touch them for fear of getting the disease, although leprosy is not a really highly contagious disease, just so you know. Yet the leper knew that Jesus had authority to heal him. If only Jesus were willing. And Jesus said, verse 41, I am willing. And so with a heart of compassion, he touched this man, a snafu in that society. But he touched him and the cleanliness of Jesus overcame the uncleanliness of a leper rather than the other way around, which normally was. The leper touched the clean and the disease went this way. Jesus, the healing, went from him out. And this man was healed instantly again. You see it? Boom! Immediately, verse 42, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed to demonstrate the authority of Jesus. Here's that first word. The authority of Jesus 
in the day and an age and there's no cure for leprosy, Jesus had the cure for leprosy. It was His touch. And from that day on, this leper's life was radically changed. No longer would he be an outcast in society. He could go in and mix and mingle among, among the people. It kind of gave him a new life. And Jesus then told him, in verse 44, see to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. Because according to the Levitical law, someone was healed from uh, leprosy. They needed to go and get the official sanction from the priest that he was cleansed. And that's what was going to take place. And yet, when people are given new life, they can't help speaking of Jesus. They can't help speaking of, of what it is that's given them life. Now, that happens in the practical world. I've seen it over and over again. People are impacted by a particular book. They're excited about the help that is brought to them. They say, oh, this book has really helped me. What do they do? They start getting that book out to everybody because it's been a big help to them. They want to get it out to everybody else so they can be help to that. They, you can't quiet somebody who's been impacted. Or people have come out of some life-threatening situation, right? They feel like they've been spared death. They want to they tell that experiences to others about, about maybe how God was gracious to them or what happened. They, they just want to talk about it. And so likewise here, the leper is given a new lease on life. You couldn't shut him up if you tried. I say this though, there's much here to learn from this man. Has Christ so impacted you that you can't help but to speak? I mean, that's the whole idea of the Gospel here. Is that this guy's been cleansed, and now he goes out and just tells everybody. Verse 45, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news all around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter the city but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. This man couldn't stop speaking because he had been changed. Have you been changed in such a way you can't stop speaking of Jesus? And no, this isn't some kind of legalistic thing. You need to be out sharing the Gospel. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, has God changed you so that you can't help but to go out and speak forth the Gospel? That's really where we need to be. That's where our purpose statement of our church, right? We enjoy His grace and extend His glory. And I believe that the more you enjoy His grace, the more you naturally want to extend His glory. It will go forth. And if you're not extending His glory probably because you're not enjoying His grace. Those two things come hand in hand. And here we see, even in this ministry, the popularity of Jesus. We've seen the authority in healing Him. We've seen the popularity in just the, the going out and spreading the news. And Jesus, I mean, Jesus was so popular, He couldn't even go to the cities anymore. He had to stay out in the farm areas, the rural communities. The people would go out to Him. He was getting so popular. And here we give an insight also in the priority of Jesus. Why, why would Jesus tell him not to say anything to anybody? I think it's because Jesus wanted His people and people ministry, preaching in small settings. He might, might touch their lives, even if the leper's been touched. And big crowds, somewhat of a detriment to what He was trying to do. But as news got out about Jesus, He still wanted to keep this priority of, of having things small, and so he went out to the countryside where things were forced to be small. Well, this is the honeymoon of Jesus when things are going well. But these days are limited. We'll see next week when the conflict comes. Because the religious leaders hated Jesus. They were a threat to Him and they will begin to attack Him. The conflict will only be resolved in the book of Mark when Jesus is put to death on the cross. And then He raises and the conflict is right there again with all who... Hate Jesus. 
let's just look at his honeymoon though and, and enjoy it today. Uh, I am uh, conducting a, a wedding of Charity Weeby. You probably saw that in the Weekly Word. Darren Weeby's uh, sister is getting married. And so I'm just thinking about, about them and they will be married this afternoon and they will be off on their honeymoon. And they will enjoy things this next week. I forget where they're going. Where they're going? Some Caribbean place? Something? I, I forget. But, but think about them just enjoying their time as a newly married couple. And so likewise, we have to just enjoy when things go well in ministry. And we have to rejoice in what Jesus did and His, his authority and His popularity and how, how He had a strategy for us to follow really as well because it's going to end next week with the conflicts. But the conflicts merely show who Jesus is. So let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see Jesus, Father, for who He is and rejoice in Him. Help us to see His authority. God, that He is the the healer who can heal us. I pray we'd see His popularity and what drove people there. What drove people to Jesus with what Jesus could do for them. And yet, in a few short years, they'll be crying out to have Him be crucified, how fickle they are. And I pray that even in our popularity, we long to see Jesus exalted and magnified. We love the benefits that we, we get from Him, even as the fighter verse for this week. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all is within me. Bless His holy name. Right? And let's forget none of His benefits, O God. You pardon us of our iniquities. You heal us of our diseases. And may we bless You for that. But may we realize that You give and You take away and that we will be loyal to You until the end. And I pray, Lord, that we would even see Your priority on small people, small groups of people. And that we might just impact those around us for the cause of Christ deeply. Help us, O Lord, to follow in in Jesus' steps and be willing to take that Calvary road. He took it for us. May we take it for Him. And I pray next week as we begin to see the conflict that it might uh, stir our hearts afresh in who Christ was and how clear the lines were drawn and how He's much better to follow than any Pharisee or Sadducee. We just trust that You'll do this in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.